Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks a lot for being a part of the conversation. I'm Phil Dark, your host, and with me is Brandon Stiver. And Brandon, uh, we have a, a completely new thing today. We're doing something we've never done before. We've done some like video things during COVID, but COVID, uh, I, I kind of like discount everything that happened during COVID. I don't even count anymore. Um, we're just we're just doing something on the show that we've never done, and I'm excited. So why don't you tell tell the audience what's going on today? We got like a million guests today, so tell what, what's what's well, the deal, man? I, I hope you're excited, Phil, because you know excited. ever I, since. You know, you know, it's just it's just a little different. So I'm just like, hey, I just want to make sure that everyone knows what's going on. I love change. I love just throwing okay. stuff, going with the flow, mixing it up. But some of the guests may be like, you know, having a you know nervous, you know, shakes right now because they just don't like change thrown on them like this. So I just want to introduce it, you know. Yeah. No, well, this this group this group is pretty unflappable, so I, I don't think we'll have any issues with these guests. But uh, yeah, we're doing something. I'm throwing a little curveball in there. Um, you know, when we uh, first started producing Think Orphan a couple years ago, now can you believe that you 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 contacted me Q two in 2021 and said, "Hey, do you want to you want to do this thing?" You know, since then I've thought through various ways that we could just bring more people into the conversation. How can we enrich more of our audience? You know, we got people coming from all over the world, hundreds of downloads on, uh, you know, within the first few weeks of every episode, people that want to learn how they can love and serve orphan and vulnerable children better. And the truth is there's a ton of people that can speak into these issues and have developed expertise in a given area. And so I've just kind of been thinking, man, what are some ways that we can kind of switch the format up a little bit? You know, um, typically what we do is um, we have, you know, one guest that comes on and we'll speak to multiple things. Uh, but I've just kind of been thinking, man, there's so many good voices that could speak to the same thing. So so that's what we're doing today. That's what we're doing today. We're, we're going to have a, a, a conversation. Uh, I'm calling this a conversations episode uh, where we have uh, a handful of uh, professionals that have been operating within a similar space. And we're just going to deep dive into a given topic. So and, uh, you know, Phil, because I threw this curveball at you as well, I decided to at least make it a, a softball and not a hardball because uh, we're starting the conversation today around Central America, where you have uh, a bit of professional experience yourself. You're wearing your Honduras jersey uh, today for those that see the video on social. Uh, Phil, why don't you start by just sharing us, you know, what's your connection with Honduras, man? People don't always, don't always talk about Providence World and, and, what, and, and some of what you guys have done in the past. So uh, what do you bring to this conversation before I uh, introduce our, our guests? Well, with Providence World, we uh, we oversaw La Providencia in just outside of Ciguatepeque, Honduras, Aguas del Padre. Um, for, I don't know, it was probably 14 years, well, before I was even involved with Providence World. And so we've just Honduras near and dear to my heart. I have, you know, people who are, um, I, I say like family, but they are family. Um, and I'm just absolutely love the country, love the people. Um, and we've, we've have a lot of, lot of experience there working with now as DNAF, it was INFA back in the day, just the government um, changges galore. Um, oh, look at Onesimo coming strong with the, like with the jersey. It. Um, but just changes after changes, you know, you never quite know what you're going to get when you're working with the, with the government, with the different uh, things going on. And, uh, and that, you know, that's, that's just the reality of, of Honduras and, and, and a lot of Central America. And so, with that comes challenges, with that comes opportunities, with that comes um, just us having to uh, pivot and and really be creative and innovative in the midst of um, how we can love and care for the children. So that's been something that I've I've been um, been doing. And it, it's been I mean, it's a huge part of this podcast. It's a huge part of In Pursuit, In Pursuit of Orphan Excellence, just the lessons that uh, were learned and have been learned and I'm continuing to learn. Um, even as we handed it off um, to another organization and they're now doing things and, and learning things and, and working uh, in concert with folks. So as we talk about collaboration, it's critical 
when you're working in the in these uh, situations. So good, man, and uh, I, I love that we could bring in some amazing voices to jump in as well. It would be one conversation if it was just me and you, Phil, and I just asked about what you guys were doing in Honduras, but uh, we have the opportunity, of course, to bring in other voices. So we have uh, four guests today, um, and uh, you know, anytime we're going international, we always have somebody that's having uh, internet issues. So we're going to see if we can get one of them back on. Uh, but we have a handful, and and uh, I'm just going to introduce them really quick. Uh, our audience will be, of course, familiar with Kara Wilson Garcia. She is the executive director of Project Red in El Salvador. Uh, Kara has been on the show before. Kara, welcome back. We also have Erica Switzer, who's the executive director of Embraced International, uh, also, in, also, of course, in Central America, operating in Honduras. We have uh, Levi Barather. He is the development coordinator at Story International in Guatemala. We've talked about Story International in the past as well. Of course, we had Alicia on uh, a year or two ago. It's been a little while, last year. Uh, and then we have Onesmo Feliz, who is a child empowerment champion, and he's a veteran in the orphan care sector, uh, has worked with a couple different organizations uh, in Central and greater Latin America. So uh, really excited to have you guys on. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to really highlight this particular conversation um, is what we're seeing in the news specifically. So um, as everybody is likely aware, what whether you're listening to the Associated Press or Fox News or whatever news outlet, there has been an ongoing immigration crisis, you know, on the southern border. And um, what I really wanted to kind of dive into was, look, when people are looking to migrate, when they're fleeing violence, when they're fleeing poverty, they are coming from somewhere. These people aren't just knocking on the door and, um, you know, hoping to get in. No, they, they actually don't want to leave their homes often there, but there is something that is forcing them to flee. And uh, we talk a lot, you know, in the greater news outlets around, you know, what does this mean for the U.S.? What I really wanted to have in this conversation was, well, what does this what does this look like where people are coming from? So I'm just going to um, briefly read. This is uh, from migrationpolicy.org. So this is, uh, we'll link this in the show notes, but just to kind of tee it up. So uh, this is just from an article, again, of migrationpolicy.org. Persistent economic and political challenges in Central America have been compounded by the COVID-19 pandemic, economic and political upheaval, and increasingly extreme weather, causing more Central Americans to migrate to the United States. Much of the recent migration has been irregular. U.S. Customs and Border Protection encountered nationals of the four largest Central American sending countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua, at the U.S.-Mexico border 109,100 times in fiscal year 2020, a number that increased to about 705,500 in fiscal year 2022. So we're seeing a tremendous uh, increase uh, of people that are looking to flee from Central America. And I think, Orphan, our heart is to see that families can stay together, communities can stay together, kids can be cared for and empowered. So uh, we're going to kind of use that as our jumping off point. And I'm going to come to Kara first. Um, So Kara, can you um, maybe just help us, you know, understand what is what is the current environment in El Salvador? Um, you know, what what does it look like for communities that Project Red is is serving? Yeah, um, it's interesting that you start with El Salvador because we have a very particular situation currently um, that's different even from the rest of Central America. I've lived here for 13 years, so I've seen the violent the gang violence go from really bad to awful, unlivable situations. And now what we currently have, um, starting, I believe it was March, the end of the last week of March of 2022, the president issued a what's called a state of exception. And those exceptions are um, c- civil liberties. So... Um, it's been it's it's been really interesting, um, really fascinating, actually, especially 
and and a little a little scary a mix a big mix of emotions i'll talk about that in a second but um just to watch how it's all unfolded because um the gang violence had gotten so so uh all consuming that there really wasn't you know any path uh that was that anybody could see to hope for for the region, I mean, for the country, but for the region. Um, so, so what's happened is that people can be uh, detained, arrested, and detained um, for any reason. Uh, essentially, there's a number that you call to report someone that you expect that you suspect um, to be affiliated with gangs or to be a gang member. You call that number that person is arrested. So um, there are tens of thousands that we know of, of people in um, new prison systems that have been created. And so the the mix of emotions and perspectives out there um, is that on the one hand, it's, it's a lot safer to go out in the streets. Um, mm. We have felt that in our work because we worked um, 60% of what we do is in, or, or more maybe, is in the homes of the families that we work with. So our team, you know, our social workers, our drivers have been like, this is, this is great <laughs> on the one hand, yeah. you know, um, because we feel a lot safer. But then on the other hand, um, there are a lot of, you know, in, in all of this, there are bound to be innocent people detained. Um, it's impossible to, it, it would be impossible to avoid that. Um, we've seen a lot of families, a lot of children left without primary caregivers. Um, yeah. so it's, it's a pretty, it, a pretty impossible situation. <laughs> and, yeah. um, it, you know, two extremes. And so I, my understanding is that we're the only country in the region that, that where that's happening. And um, it has been extreme and very scary, even for our staff, because I'm the only you know, foreigner on staff. And, you know, if you, if you rub someone the wrong way, you, you have to be really careful out there. So um, does that make sense? So uh, that, yeah. that's kind of where we are here in El Salvador. No, it's, I mean, that's, I, and I've seen some of that stuff coming in the news and obviously with the president, he is a, he's a different thinker than what we've seen in some other countries. Um, but those really draconian type of, uh, interventions, um, that, that, that just kind of creates, it's kind of like a pick your poison, you know, do you want to have your civil liberties just completely violated or do you want to live in a violence, you know, ridden community? I mean, that's, that's just really tough. I'm going to come to Erica, you know, Erica, you, with you living in San Pedro Sula there in Honduras and the work that Embraced International is doing, how does that compare? What is, what does it look like, you know, for, for you, for your family, for your team, as you guys are also, um, looking to reunify kids, you know, strengthen families. What does this look like in Honduras? Yeah. Um, I, well, I think the best thing I can do is really just share some insight from personal experiences of people that I know who have left Honduras, right, or who have considered leaving, uh, because obviously I was born in the States, um, which comes with so many privileges in so many areas. But obviously for this conversation, talking about travel, um, international travel, right? Uh, so I've lived an extremely different experience uh, my whole life than the people that we're going to be talking about today. Um, so I'm definitely not going to pretend to know the depth of how it feels to just not have access to international travel, to live with that kind of uncertainty and um, just all the other feelings of hopelessness, obviously that uh, a lot of people that I live around uh, feel daily or throughout their life, right? Um, but obviously I can share from the experiences that have been shared with me. Um, and I think just maybe before I jump into that too, like I think when we're talking about the topic of migration, uh, I think it's good to just lean away from like huge generalizations, right? To talking about them or they or migrants, like 
phrases like that in reference to large groups of people because I think, I mean, I think it's really good to find like the source, like the motivating power behind people like migrating. But I also, I just think that when we start to kind of group people together and say what's true of them as a whole, we lose kind of what's true for the individual and their story, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and so I think like, talk, we're going to talk about numbers and statistics, uh, but before we do that, just like remembering like each one of these people have like really, they've been through something that has motivated them to such a level, not just like, oh, I'd like to travel and are looking for like reels on Instagram to find like a new place to go and see and visit or uh, like so many of us have that privilege to do, but they're real people who have like truly suffered. Um, and so just kind of like with that in mind, uh, based on gosh, some of the people that I can share from some of their experiences, um, I guess like jumping into it, some of the motivating factors that are pushing people to migrate from Honduras it really comes down to poverty. Um, I think the lack of jobs, opportunities uh, that can really sustain their families just kind of causes a lack of security and stability that generates so much hopelessness. And I think that in general, there's a feeling across the board in Honduras that the situation isn't going to get better anytime soon. So it's not just like, oh, we have to we have to get through this for a few more years. Like we have to like only eat beans and rice or whatever, whatever it is right for just like the next six months two years like it just feels like general just like this is life here and the only real way of changing a situation is by leaving or having someone in the united states uh north america that can really help generate change um so i mean i think people are really just going to get a chance i think uh finding an opportunity of employment to make a better life for their family i mean in honduras most people are making around 12 dollars a day right they're not living month to month they're living day to day. And I think like that's just never going to allow people to achieve stability, generational wealth. Like that's just so far of a concept, right? Um, especially like you throw on the fact that like living off of $12 a day, you're spending everything that you're making obviously just to survive. And then you throw in like the craziness of like interest rates for a mortgage are at 12 to 15%, right? It's just like impossible, right? Like I, I couldn't do it. Um, so I think like people, I mean, it's the reality is too, like people have left too because they feel like they're at, their lives are at risk because of the threats of, of the presence of gangs, just like Kara was just talking about. Um, that's still very real. We haven't had huge drastic uh, government shifts uh, like they have in El Salvador. So there's not been like a real like motivation to mass incarceration like there, there has been in El Salvador against gangs and their power. So we're kind of still kind of in that limbo and people really feel like they can't go anywhere else to keep their kids safe. Um, so that's a huge, that's a huge motivating factor. Yeah. But I don't know. I think honestly, more than anything, people are just going for hope and for a chance. And just like I assume, like for most of us, like even recording today, like our great something grandparents, right, did not too long ago, like just, just for hope. Yeah. No, that's really good, Erica. And I'm going to circle back to that poverty uh, piece there in a minute. Uh, Phil, I, as somebody that was also involved in Honduras, I mean, what are your thoughts as far as having seen that, uh, you know, kind of a trajectory there of, uh, you know, that you might call it hopelessness? I mean, what what does that look like as far as like going back in your ministry? Well, the reality is, I mean, we talked about it back in I think it was like episodes 50s. Uh, with Michael Miller and Poverty Inc., you know, just the idea of the fact that the government has no interest in getting people in poverty out of poverty because their power goes with it. And when that is the reality, the the hope for getting out of poverty is minimal. It's just the reality of it. And um, and so their hope is elsewhere. And that elsewhere, the easy elsewhere is the U.S., right, in their mind, because they have this. I mean, I've seen in people's homes a picture of a house in America and underneath it, it says the American dream. That's in Honduras. And it's that that dream that is there that often becomes a nightmare, unfortunately, because they don't have the reality check while they're in Honduras. So they go through the well, if I can just get there, then everything is going to be solved. I'm going to make millions of dollars and I'm going to be able to send it home 
And the fact is that doesn't happen for most, right? I mean, they don't even make thousands of dollars. They're just struggling to get there. If they even get there, several, you know, many die on the way, many get there and it's a, it's a, not a great thing. Many get there, don't send money back to their family because they either aren't able or they just bail. Um, so it becomes this cycle that is this false hope, this, this dream that doesn't have a lot of basis in reality, but it's caused a big, one of the causes there's, there's many, many causes. It's not like it's just the government doing it and bringing them down. They're all victims. There is so many other issues. There's identity issues, right? The fatherhood, the lack of fathers, um, the brokenness of family, the, the fact that there's just these, um, there are, there's huge unemployment. But again, that, that a lot of that comes from the governments is we talk about it's broken systems, broken worldview. We talk about that. We've talked about that in Helping Hur- When Helping Hurts. We see that on Poverty Inc. But there's, there's all these different areas that, that come into play. We don't have time to get into today. I encourage people to go back and listen to those Poverty Inc. conversations we have with Michael Miller on that, as well as watching the documentary. But in Central America, I don't think it's any different from South America, from Africa, from a lot of these other countries where the governments um, don't have incentive to get the poor out of poverty. Um, in fact, just the opposite. Yeah. And because and, of that, all the other things happen. Yeah. No, that's uh, uh, that's that's really a good point, Phil. Uh, you know, and one of the things I kind of want to even think through, I remember at one point in my um I was consulting with this church up here in the Pacific Northwest and they had a partner in Kenya and I was just sharing some of my experience, you know, working in East Africa and talking about how I was in an urban context and, you know, this is what we were doing and this is how we came alongside communities and so forth. And um, once I started to talk about that, he started to basically dismiss me because they were in a rural area and rural and urban can be quite different. I was on a call yesterday with somebody in Honduras who talked about, you know, actually the violence doesn't reach them quite as much because they're more in a rural area. But sometimes the poverty issues in rural areas can be even more intractable. So, I, you know, Levi, I want to come to you and just kind of hear a little bit of your guys' experience in Guatemala, because as I'm a, uh, I believe that you guys are in a more rural area. So when we talk about violence, when we talk about poverty, when we talk about coming alongside vulnerable families and vulnerable children, what does that environment look like for you guys uh, specifically? And how might that be juxtaposed against other areas of Guatemala even? Yeah, we're kind of a mixture of urban and rural because we're a city, but it is a very rural area with lots of like smaller aldeas or villages all around us. Um, yeah, and it really, I mean, at least in the context that we're working in, it doesn't make that huge of a difference in terms of looking at migration, for example, because the, the big driving factor from what I understand of migration to the United States for people here is lack of economic opportunity. And that can be tied back to all sorts of factors. And that'll look different in certain areas. It might be due to globalization. Some of it's due to these lasting scars from the civil war. Some of it's due to a significant amount of government corruption. And yeah, same sort of thing in here in Guatemala, where there really isn't incentive for the government to to solve this poverty issue. In fact, I was just talking with one of our staff members today, and she said the the Guatemalan government is actually working on implementing a new tax to where they can tax the remittances being sent back from the United States. And so really, they only stand to gain from more money being sent down from the United States. But it's definitely, there's so much just desperation here. You know, looking at the economic situation, uh, the minimum wage is supposed to be, you know, 3,300 quetzales, which is like, I think around $400 a month. But realistically, you know, one of my staff members here on our team was telling me like, probably 70% of of employment in Guatemala offers less than the minimum wage. And so there's people earning Interesting. sometimes maybe a third or less of the required minimum wage. And even the minimum wage is not enough to meet what is the calculated estimate for how much it would take to support a family of four just with their nutritional needs. And so it's just seen as this 
you know, situation where there's really no way out except for someone to go and represent their family and to be able to send money back. Because, you know, when you earn, if you're earning, you know, some people might earn 100 to $200 an entire month. Whereas somebody can go, go to the States and earn that, you know, even not earning very much at a job might earn that in a day or two. And if you can, you know, end up working 30 days in a month, you know, working overtime, working extra days, all of a sudden you're providing for all of your, your family and, you know, cousins, uncles, all sorts of people with just one person being in the States. And so, and even looking, you know, at the, the church response to this, the church is unable to really meet the needs of families either, just because they're also suffering from this sort of economic desperation all around. And again, the government doesn't have any incentive to, to stop it because they stand to gain from it. And so, yeah, we have seen, even in the families we work with, we've experienced some of those situations where even sometimes young people would, would, you know, under 18 would flee and try and get to the United States. And, you know, I just heard of a, a 23 year old girl who, this was not someone directly in our programs, but somebody, one of our staff members knew who went to the States or tried to, took out this giant loan and was killed on the way there. And now, you know, her, she had a home and a child and now her mom has to take care of this child. But now that she had this big loan, the home was taken away. So now you're just trapped in one of these, you know, cycles of poverty. And that's really the big thing is just these cycles of poverty that have existed. Right. Right. And as you were talking, Levi, that's, it, that's exactly what came to mind. This is just a vicious cycle. So if we turn on the news and we just hear there's violence in you know central america and people are running away and um you know this country is the murder capital of the western hemisphere and like you know all of these kind of things we just hear violence 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 but really the, the poverty is is so uh entrenched that it kind of is on that cycle and then when you mix in some of the shortcomings of the government or corruptions it just kind of creates you know that 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 you know, exactly the experience that Central Americans are are having. So, uh, you know, kind of circling back, if somebody is looking to get out of their situation, and of course, we don't, we, we are absolutely pro-refugee, pro-asylum seeking, like we want migrants to have a fair, you know, shake. We also recognize that all else aside, they would not want to be leaving their home country, you know. So kind of taking all of those things into consideration, if, uh, if, if I would love to get your guys' opinion and maybe I'll start with Kara again, you know, if, um, if somebody is looking to flee and the primary reason is poverty, even aside from violence, would you consider that a legitimate thing or how would you kind of chop that up? If somebody, you know, said, I got to get out of here because there's just no opportunity here. There's, you know, just poverty all over the place. How would you kind of assess that uh, based on your experience working with uh, people in El Salvador, Kara? Yeah, I think that definitely it's a, absolutely the, the poverty and the lack of economic opportunities um, paired with the cyclical trauma um, that there's, that you can't deny that it's just such a such a key factor in all of it and the combination and to me my my perception and like what where where our work takes place with and i i guess everyone else is on on here like just with the most vulnerable cases of generational trauma that paired with the, the poverty the lack of economic opportunities just makes for the perfect storm for there to be no options. Our perception is that that's a huge, the, the, com the combination of that is what is the driving factor um, and the desperation for just something different is uh, for sure, for sure what, what we yeah. see every day. So Erica, with, with 
the families that you guys are working with. So you were previously working with another organization focused on foster care. You're now looking at a lot of family reunification, you know, uh, there in kind of a more urban area. What is it? What does it look like when when you are looking to reunify or strengthen families, you know, within your context when there is this poverty and there is this violence? I mean, what does what does that look like for you guys at Embraced? I mean, it's nothing short of complicated, right? Um, so there's two sides to it, because when when we sit with a family um, and we hear, well, my kid's in an orphanage now for reasons caused by extreme poverty, right? I just want to get them back because that's that's their heart cry, right? Uh, but and and then we're going to go to the states, like that's that's kind of that their their game plan, right? And so. Uh, we obviously like we love Honduras. We want to empower Hondurans to to create communal change, to create uh, generational changes, and so uh, we really believe in finding every opportunity to empower that family, right? To change their circumstances, obviously, to to create an opportunity that changes the immediate circumstance, but also like creates a different future path for for their kids as well. Um, and so that's that's typically our focus is, all right, well, like if you were to say, then like what what would that look like for you? How would that uh, how can we get you to a place where you're not just like scraping and, and fighting just to just to get the food on the table for for today? But like, how can we get you to a place that's sustainable? And so that's really kind of our, our focus with families. Um, but on the other side, like when I put myself in the position of, of families, and I would go, right? Like there's so many times where I'm like, man, like if you, if you're in a desperate situation where you don't know what to do, like, I mean, I'm, I'm a risk taker naturally. So I think I would roll the dice sometimes, but being in the situation, sitting like in, in the house of, of some of these families being like, I get it. Like I see the appeal. And uh, so I think there's those two sides where I, I feel like yeah, like if you could make it, and if you could, if you could be working in the states, and and no no family thinks that I've ever talked to thinks that it, they're going to get to the states and it's going to be easy money and it's going to be, it's all going to come easily. Or definitely another thing I hear all the time that people say to us, they're like, well, don't you think that people are just going to arrive to the states and they're just looking for like a government handout? That is like so far from like the context of Honduras because there is no government welfare system in Honduras. Or like, you know what I mean? Like developing countries don't have food stamps. They don't have food banks. They don't, churches like, like Levi mentioned, don't have the resources to even like have these kind of uh, programs, right? So there's no like incentive of like, oh, they're going to go to the States and like get something for free. Everyone's thinking I'm going to go to the States and fight for my family and, and, and claw us out of this, this hole that we're in of poverty. So, uh, but we really do, uh, circling back, we really do focus on how do we, get you sustainable here, not just get you in a comfortable position so then you can use this as a springboard and get yourself to the United States, but how can we get you set up as a family long-term, work together to kind of empower and change your situation um, for this generation and generations to come. So that's our focus. And obviously through like small business loans and and stability and, and like housing and stuff like that, that's kind of some of the avenues of how we get there. So, but yeah, I see both sides. I don't know. Yeah, I just, um, I also think that this is a great time to mention that the work that each of our organizations do, that's why I just feel like without taking any sort of political stance, like what we're doing essentially is like prevention. Um, because when you strengthen families where they are, like that, that to me, no matter what country you're in, no matter what region, like that's the most important. I mean, obviously we think that because this is what we do, but I really believe that strengthening families is the most important work of all, um, no matter what your context is. And as a, as a result, you can, you can prevent uh, migration, irregular migration from happening. Not that that's our, like mission, <laughs> but that's just uh, that I, I really strongly believe that like that these types of programs that, that we're all um, able to, to, to participate in are just so important for that. Yeah, that's really good. And I think with family strengthening, um, 
that can look like a number of things and there's different mechanisms for how to strengthen family coming from various stakeholders and really we want to create a network where communities are upheld and strengthened so i I really appreciate that kara uh levi what are your what are your thoughts on this yeah i would absolutely agree i think the big thing that these organizations like ours who are focusing on family strengthening and family empowerment like i mean realistically and like looking at the situation in guatemala here that's like really one of the only ways that you can reasonably prevent a lot of this illegal immigration because when you look at the situation of broken families and single parents and you look at these numbers for how much a person might earn as a single parent, it literally becomes impossible to provide for the needs of your family. And when you can like try and open up doors for economic opportunity, which has been a big struggle here, again, just because of corruption and lack of opportunity and generational cycles where kids can't go to school because their parents didn't go to school. And now there's just not enough money opportunities, not enough potential for like economic growth within the family, their generational wealth. You get stuck down here at this level to where without some level of empowerment, you're going to be stuck there probably for a really long time. And so out of desperation, yeah, a lot of people are going to leave. And so yeah, I would again say like, again, leaving politics aside, this is definitely a kind of prevention work because you want to see families thrive in their community. You know, again, look at our context. A lot of people I think really love their country. They don't love the situation that they're in, but it's not like these Guatemalans who are leaving are leaving because they want to leave Guatemala. It's because they want to be able to support their families. I think you would see most people staying here if there was viable economic opportunities for them and a way for them to build a life for themselves and their families without, yeah, I mean, there really isn't right now for so many families. And so that's just the reality that we're in. This episode is brought to you by the Attachment and Trauma Focused Therapy online course by Deborah Gray. I've mentioned this training to you all before as it is a premier resource covering an array of topics in attachment, trauma, grief, and loss. We are excited to share that we have just moved the course over to our Journey Home platform with great learning options for both parents and clinicians alike. It is a full-length accredited postgraduate program with over 20 hours of training, and it is critical information for those of us in this sector. The Attachment and Trauma-Focused Therapy program was produced by One Million Home and is available in partnership with Honestly Adoption and Cascadia Learning. We have locked in the course for just $99. Such a bargain. There are also additional options for professionals needing to get continuing education units or who want to join a live casing group. Not only that, but for listeners of Think Orphan, use the coupon code THINKORPHAN, one word, all lowercase, to get an additional $10 off. Go to onemillionhome.com front slash ATFT to sign up or just click the link in our show notes. I'm just going to jump in. I can't echo what the two of you have said more. Um, I think... And we know this, like on a local scale in the States, if you want to change something, obviously, like I'm not not looking for donations or anything, but like you have to support local nonprofits who are doing the work, right? Obviously, donating to or giving money to the government, it's never going to happen like through large, large scales like that. Um, and so we actually often talk about, uh, yes, obviously, people have very strong political views in the United States of immigration and everything and we always talk about well if you whether you land on the side of like you truly like care about uh people coming from from the southern border and you want to you want to support them like you feel passionate about caring for them or you're on the completely opposite side of the spectrum of like you want to prevent them from coming truly the best way to do that is by empowering families like there's no way around it you can't you can't just say stop coming because i think like something if you if you think of a desperate mother or a desperate father who is in that level of desperation, there's no wall, there's no there's no other prevention that is going to keep people from providing for their kids and their families. Because I think that's what that's such a reality is parents and family members truly Latin people in Latin America truly care about family. I think at a level that sometimes even like in North America, like we struggle to comprehend because family is such a core unit of culture. And so, I mean, I've 
been in hundreds of homes and so many of them just say, well, like I have a daughter in the States who's supporting me, like who is sacrificing daily. Like the idea of the sacrifice on behalf of your family is something that I think that as North Americans, we don't fully, fully grasp because we've never had to live in that level of desperation and have to live off of nothing so that our kids or our mom or whoever it is can not just maybe potentially thrive, but survive. Right. So I think family, the best, the best form of preservation or sorry, uh, prevention, like everyone else is saying is truly just investing in families. Yeah, that's really, that's really good. And I, I appreciate this, you know, looking at family strengthening as kind of a core need to prevent the adversity that these communities are going through and and certainly those root causes of even what's leading to people leaving their homes. You know, along those lines of family strengthening and recognizing the opportunities that are before not only nonprofits like, you know, what each of you are leading, but also the church more broadly. When it come to Onesmo and just kind of Onesmo, as you have worked with churches, uh, not only in Central America, but Latin America, South America, even, um, I would love to just kind of hear, you know, what is the church doing, you know, uh, and, and what, how is the church responding to the needs um, uh, around or, for orphans and widows in, in Latin America and Central America specifically? Uh, as you've worked with churches and pastors, what is what does that specifically look like, and what are churches doing? Thank you, Brandon, and thank you all. Uh, you've you've shared very insightful points. And um, going to your question, um, in my twelve years of experience, I've met probably with about five hundred pastors in the whole Latin American countries, and um, I, I enjoy talking to pastors. Um, because I have met very wonderful leaders that um, they are doing a lot of work in their communities. And there are two elements that I have to mention before going to the actions. So number one, um, many of our pastors are uh, bioccupational. So they share their ministry with a really full-time job which is needed to sustain their families and number two most of them do not have a formal uh pastoral training or a bible seminar so what i see these wonderful people doing is number one they are reflecting god's love in their communities and that's why circling back to my first comment, change, I have seen change possible because of these leaders, not only pastors, but also teachers, uh, and other leaderships in the communities, they are reflecting God's love and uh, kind of mentioning some of the Brian Myers ideas. Um, when you go to a place to work, God has already been there before you arrived. So reflecting God's love is critical in these challenges that we face in our Latin American countries. Number two, many pastors, and um, speaking of the male figure, they provide because of the absence of, uh, you know, men going through the borders. Um, these pastors provide a male figure in their community as well. Because many of the children in the community, they don't have a father. And these pastors are like parents to everyone. And number three, I've seen pastors uh, providing housing, providing um, basic uh, nutritional meals, and um, providing that community environments that going back to Erica's comments, um, having that that environment in their communities would assure that many people do not have or do not wish to risk their lives. So I've seen pastors uh, working with their males, like doing a lot of work to really uh, care for their communities. Brother. Yeah, that's really good. And, and I definitely think 
they, they can play such an important role. I, I know from my experience working in East Africa, it was the same. Everybody was bivocational. <laughs> like it was like, like they're like pretty much every pastor was. And I think that even in many ways speaks to the need for not just broad scale economic development, but household income development. You know, uh, the pastors themselves who have a heart to serve God are also working and they're working in a way where, you know, that's going to be their mode of income. Um, if Phil, I want to, I want to come to you as well. Um, actually let's, let's hop back to Onesmo. One other thing, uh, one other thing that you wanted to share. Yes. Thank you, Brandon. I, I, I have seen transformation of a whole community through transforming one family and this particular community that I'm thinking of, it's one was very encouraged here in the Dominican Republic. And um, we didn't really have the intention to do a lot of transformational impacts. But we said, we cannot help them all. Let's help the pastor. And, you know, there are good and bad pastors out there, but this, this came to be a good one. And you got to go to that community and see the impacts. This community, people from lower countries coming to that community uh, to buy what they are producing. And when you visit, no, nobody from this community is looking to go to the United States because they already have the empowerment they need in their communities. I, I'm really hopeful when I see people like you guys doing what you guys are doing and what we're doing. I've heard a lot from you about you and the work you are doing uh, Eric, I didn't know much about you, but I, I've heard something. So I'm really hopeful to see people doing great stuff in Latin America. Yeah, and I, and I appreciate that, Onesmo. And it kind of gets to what I was wanting to kind of have Phil speak to. You know, there there are good organizations that are doing good work, of course, like Embraced and Story and Project Red. Um, but obviously we're also recognizing that there's a lot of gaps. So, you know, as Phil, as, as people kind of hear, um, you know, on the news, what's going on, what can I do? You know, do I need to host an asylum seeker? Do I need to, uh, what's, what, what's kind of your take on, you know, how Americans can come around side, you know, nonprofits, uh, you know, even to kind of help mitigate some of the push factors that are leading to people coming across. What, what does that dynamic look like? And, and from your experience at Providence? So just so I have the right, uh, what you're actually asking here, are you talking about here on the U.S. side when they yeah, come absolutely. in? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, well, no, not even that. Just like if if the if if Americans hear in the news as far as what they, you know, this is what's going on. People, you know, seven hundred thousand people last year are trying to come in. There's all these, you know, violence, poverty, so forth. I mean, how can people, um, you know? take action to support organizations or what should their approach be, you know, in terms of organizations that they support and work that they support? What, what are your kind of thoughts on that intersection? Yeah. yeah, I gotcha. Well, first of all, I will say, I'm sure that everyone on this uh, call who spends any time in the U S and tells people they do work in Central America, one of the responses you'll get um, from people throughout is, well, why are they all coming over and how can you stop them? Right. We, we don't want more people here from who aren't supposed to, you know, I mean, you hear this all the time and it's just, it's, again, that's a tragic thing to me too, that, that people, that's the first response rather than, you know, wondering, like you said, how can we help, how can we help people not want to desperately travel through awful situations and places? I mean, places no one wants to, I don't personally hear a lot of people saying, yeah, I'm just going to drive down to Honduras from, from California. Like that's not a typical thing you do because there's a lot of things on the way that aren't aren't great. So that's one side of it. The other side I will say is one thing we've heard on this call is what we've talked about from day one on Think Orphan, which is the interconnectedness of everything. Right. So you can't just say, oh, there's people coming over the border. Well, yeah, we've talked about today poverty. We've talked about, um, you know, identity formation. We've talked about family strengthening. We've talked about. Um, you know, how can we get the gov the government issues and the nuances there and the fact that there's corruption and the fact that there's all these things going on. So as we've also talked about, there's not one silver bullet. So 
from people listening, if you're listening to this and you just hopped on because you're curious about Central America, you're cur- curious about migration, you're curious about what these other things, I would say talk to people like the folks on this call. Give them a call. Talk with them about the issues that are going on today. Um, also, from the standpoint of nonprofits partnering with different organizations in Central America, find someone like Onesimo who knows the issues, who, uh, who has worked in these countries, who speaks fluently, who is a native speaker, who can go in and actually have conversations, who can go in to conversations with the government and know some of those things and have credibility um, because he has worked in those areas. I know I've worked with Onesimo. He was part of the organization that we handed it off to. And we have a great working relationship in that regard. And, and I know we have sat in meetings with government officials and to have someone like Onesimo there who can understand, again, I, you know, I speak Spanish kind of, but, you know, even if I was fluent as a second language, there are things that would get lost in translation. And I know that. And so rather than going, well, I'll wing it. No, find people that are able to do that. So that's, that's one side of it. That's a whole different thing that, you know, that's not necessarily the conversation for today, except to say it also goes to the standpoint of don't just go into countries. And I know everyone on the call would, would, well, I don't know that I'm assuming everyone on the call would agree to this. Don't just go in as an American and thinking, oh, I can figure this out because, because I've studied it and I've, I've read, I've read stuff on the internet. And I know things. And so I can go in and I can just start a nonprofit and go solve these problems in this country. It's not going to that. That's just unrealistic as someone donating, um, as someone wanting to partner, you know, make sure that the organizations you're working with are are not only working with people on the ground, but empowering people on the ground to be the leaders, to be the ones who are having the conversations with the government that actually aren't just having conversations, but understand all the issues. So that's where talking through the research that you've done with the people on the ground to empower and build up the people who are in that country because they have the most investment. They are the ones who are most vested and they are the ones who will be the ones who are, who are um, sowing the seeds for the future um, in family strengthening, in the in the uh, identity formation, in all these things that we've talked about, to be able to uh, fight for the government reform, to be able to do all these things, Americans coming in, other people coming in, are not going to have the impact that the locals, that the nationals will have. It just is a fact. So those are all things that I would say, you know, uh, are key. Um, and understanding that there's not one area we can come in and go, oh, this is it. If we solve this, it's all going to be solved. No, you know, family strengthening is massive. Don't get me wrong. Government reform is massive. Poverty alleviation is massive. All these things are massive. And we need to do all of them in concert for each other, which is why we've talked about collaboration so much. If we're not doing it together it's going to be all this piecemeal work that the government will actually love because they know it won't be in concert and they can just kind of tell each party, well, yeah, you know, we're working on that, but it's all these other things that are the problem. Well, if we're all doing it together and we can come in, in a, as a unified voice, that will be a huge part of moving the ball forward. And this isn't something that's going to get solved in the next two years. Um, this is, these are legacy visions, unfortunately. That's the, the fact is these are things that will continue on and we can put dents into them. We can take baby steps towards solutions. Some will be major solutions, but most of it will be baby step solutions that that will unfortunately last longer than most of our time on earth. Some of you are younger than me, but uh, you know, I have hope for it, but I also know these are things that we need to fight for and we know we need to build up others so we can pass it on to them to continue the fight. Yeah, that's good, uh, Phil, and, and definitely agree. We want to see... Um, you know, Central Americans absolutely leading. And uh, I think that there's no other way for there to be sustainable solutions. Um, and one of, you know, kind of getting after that solutions piece, um, there, I, I think kind of based on this conversation, and this is uh, warranted as far as I can tell, you know, there there is some uh, critique of approaches that government might be taking. Um, and, you know, whether that's kind of the, Again, kind of the draconian, you know, intervention or the 
hands-off approach or the just kind of lack of capacity. But undoubtedly, um, and evidenced by those uh, practitioners and leaders that are even on this call, there are also some things that are working, that are making a difference. So, uh, you know, before we get too close to wrapping up, I would definitely love to hear, you know, what, 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 what has worked, you know, for supporting, uh, you know, vulnerable families, you know, whether within your organization or something else that you've seen, something that has uh, proven effective um, on the social services front or enterprise or child protection, um, you know, whatever might fit that uh, box. Uh, I'm going to go to Erica first. Erica, can you maybe just share if it's something that Embrace is doing or even just one of your community partners, what are you seeing that is actually making a difference for vulnerable families? Sure. Yeah. Um, so like we mentioned before, it's the help isn't going to come for from the government. Right. Um, I think child welfare services is managing that best <laughs> most days. Right. Uh, so for co- some quick context, actually, the child welfare office uh, in the region that we work with also oversees uh, returned migrants um, when they're for children. Right. And so uh just last year i mean there were 16,000 returned migrants uh so they're they're keeping their heads above water at best just trying to reintegrate those kids um about a third of them have come back unaccompanied by adults right so reintegrate those kids into their families or place them in orphanages because those are those are pretty much our options in honduras um so it's not going to come from the government like we talked about right um and i think really i mean there's there are initiatives there's for example, uh, World Vision was doing uh, like spot, startup business loans for families who re- were returned from from the United States and Mexico deported. Um, so helping them kind of find that economic stability that we've been talking about. Um, and there's small nonprofits who are on the ground uh, working in family preservation. And I think what we talked about before, like empowering families is the solution, right? Like there's just there's just no other way around it. Uh, at Embrace, we. We try to take as holistic of an approach as we can. We know that every family is different. They have unique struggles. They have unique situations, right? Um, just in the pure fact of family size or single mother, but there's so many factors, right? Um, so we know that we'll never be able to just walk into a community of a thousand families and say, all right, this is your solution, like for all of you, like accept the package, right? Like it's, it's never gonna be that. So it's always gonna be social workers, psychologists working hand in hand with families coming up. We at Embrace come up with a, after meeting with the family, come up with an empowerment plan. So it's pretty holistic and includes obviously nutrition, uh, uh, housing situations, evaluating their health, evaluating um, like schooling, evaluating um, just all the areas, right? And so we make sure that emotional health as well, obviously. Um, So we just kind of try to work with the families in those areas, right? So that they are sustainable. And uh, job employment is one of those as well. So either creating a job through a small business loan um, and walking with them until that's kind of at a sustainable place or uh, helping them find employment that's going to be practical, right? And so I think just like as long as nonprofits are working individually with families and in depth, to really not just be like, all right, here's your Band-Aid, here's your, your delivery of food this one time, we're gonna like we've already mentioned that it one changing one family changes a community because when that family gets stronger when that family gets empowered they are then enabled to empower the people around them and we've seen it every time i don't think we've ever worked with a family uh yet who has just been like thank you thank you give me give me give me right they're not they're typically like oh wow like you guys empowered me to do this and i actually hired my neighbor to like be my assistant and where they're expansion-minded people because that's those are the type of people we're interested in investing in right when we invest in families like that they multiply the investment so i think that is the answer um i think just working with families based on their individual needs is is how we change the scope that's so good yeah no that's so good and and really i think what we're even hearing in that response going in depth being as comprehensive as possible is that there are a lot of levers that we can pull in order to strengthen families, right? In order to help communities, you know, overcome the poverty, the violence, the adversity. Um, So thank you each. We have one final question uh, that we're going to give to our group here. And uh, basically it's just really simple. And I'm going to start with, uh, I'm going to start with uh, Kara here. 
Um, what would be the one thing that you want people to know about orphans and vulnerable families in the contract in the context that you're serving in? Okay, I'm going to say two things really fast. Um, Just and it's, it's really summing up everything that we've already said. First of all, it's complicated. It's really complicated. There are multiple layers of generational, historical, emotional, psychological, spiritual issues. So it's not just a simple, like, where, where are they coming? That that's not it. So that that's the one thing. And then the second thing is that my strong, strong opinion is that the more direct, the more grassroots, the more local, um, the support can be for families, the better. So, um, those would be my two things. I'm done. That's, that's good. That's good. All right, Levi, what would be that one thing you would want to communicate about the families that you guys are engaged with? Yeah, I would say, again, looking at this migration topic again, would be try and have more empathy considering the context that we come from. I think it can be very easy to, to think like, oh, well, you know, if they just worked a little harder or tried this or tried that. And consider for a moment that a lot of these people in these communities that we serve, like here in Weiwei-Tanago, for example, like the lack of economic mobility and access to resources literally puts people in physical danger. Like I know we look at asylum as like, oh, they're escaping war or gang violence. But if you can't eat and you can't feed your kids and you're experiencing stunting and illness and all of these things, you are literally in, an, in a state of emergency. And so I would say try and have more empathy in looking at and trying to understand the actual depth of the struggle that people in certain areas in Central America are facing. That's really good, Levi. All right, Onesmo, what would be one thing that you would want people to know about orphans and vulnerable families? I would make it three. <laughs> Just number one, connect. Number two, empower. Number three, support. Everyone is able to connect. The difficult part is about empowering because everybody wants to be in control. And going back to the fails coming, empowering and trusting people in the communities, like Karen mentioned, uh, that's, that's key if we want to get success. That's good. Erica, same question. Yeah, I think we talked, a, we've mentioned a, like hopelessness a lot. Um, and I, I think I just want people to know that like, yeah, like there's some really crazy hopeless situations, but there's really not when people are doing the work, right? Like when we are focused on empowering families, like there truly is so much hope, like sitting with families. And I know everyone on this call will, will agree. Like there's so much hope when you're looking into somebody's eyes and they're just, they're saying, if I just had $150 to start up this business and you're like, okay, how can, like how we can make that happen, right? To change the scope from changing hopelessness to hope. So I just think, I think it's really possible and it is complicated. Everything that care, everything you guys have said is so true, but I think every, the mix of everything, if we in front these complicated situations with the empathy that, that Levi mentioned, and if we empower families, like, like you guys are mentioning, I think, I think it, it worked family by family. Right. And so that's all. That's really good. And and I do think it is important and even why Think Orphan is here is to get into those complications, those nuances. And, you know, when we are talking about really intractable issues, um, poverty, uh, violence, you know, general adversity, government issues, it does create that vicious cycle. So it takes not just a single entity to address all of those things. We actually need a multi-sectoral, multi-agency approach. So if you're listening to this and you are involved in Central America, um, especially if you're in one of the countries that have been highlighted specifically with that Northern Triangle, um, you know, I would encourage you guys to reach out to the people that are on this call, reach out to One Million Home, reach out to, to Phil at Providence, um, because we need one another. Um, and you know, the issues that are, that are at hand, you know, when it comes to, uh, Central America, um, we aren't meant to do it on our own. So, uh, definitely would encourage any of our listeners to be, uh, reaching out and to be following up. 
And uh, I just want to thank you guys, each of you so much. Onesmo, Kara, Levi, Erica, thank you guys for uh, coming on the show. Uh, Phil, uh, I gave you a softball. Uh, how did how did we do, man? I, well, we definitely got the right people. Uh, not all the right internet connections, but we all made do. Uh, what did you think, bro? It's great. No, it's fan. I love it. I am so encouraged by everyone on the call. You know, some of you are are good friends. Uh, others, we are acquaintances. Others, I don't know that I've ever met. And um, so, uh, I I'm just excited of what God's doing um, because he's he's moving. Um, it sometimes seems like he's moving, and we're stuck in quicksand. Um, but uh, but I also know that the right you know, there's, there's a lot of really good people. And so I, I will say just a, a quick plug, I'm going to be uh, heading down to Honduras and probably within the next month or so. And I'm, I'm hoping to meet with anybody uh, who's listening. Um, Erica, I know you're there. Hope, I don't know if you're going to be in, in country, but, but I'd love to meet with folks just to talk through, you know, what does real collaboration look like and, and what is, and how can we be doing a lot of the things we're talking about here? And I just encourage more conversations like that. I know everyone's busy and I know there's so much going on and everyone's kind of got their head down doing what they're doing. But a lot of times, um, if you can collaborate and work together, um, it will actually take stuff off of your plate and you will be able to do the things that uh, you are able to do really, really well. You'll be able to do more of that. You won't have to do as some of the other things that you're trying to do when other people could be doing those. So anyway, that's something that, you, you know, if you've listened to this show for two minutes, you know that that's what my heart is and what I'm about and why we do this show. And really, um, I, I just encourage folks to, to, to seek ways to do kingdom work together. I mean, that's how God intended it read John 17 if you're wondering what I'm talking about with unity um but uh but that's something that we are better we are better together I mean that's yeah it's cliche and yeah it's kind of cheesy sometimes but it's true so anyway with all that folks um uh, I hope and pray uh as as always that that you're taking what you're learning from the show what you learned today you use it to help you to to love orphaned and vulnerable children better and better each and every day thanks a lot have a great couple weeks We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.